Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Um, I, I want to sort of give a couple of caveats. Today we're going to look at this question in our series. Uh, the question is, how should a Christian relate to the LGBTQ plus community? Exhale. I want to begin this with two really big cautions, okay? Two really big cautions. The first caution is this. This message is going to address matters of human sexuality at length. So that said, if you're watching online, if you're in this room, and you're not ready to have that kind of conversation with your child yet, I want to give you the option to opt out, okay? I I know most of the kids went down the hallway, but if you're not ready to have that conversation yet, I just want to give you the option uh, to opt out. The second caution I want to extend is that there are parts of this message, especially on the front end in the story that I'm going to share, that may be triggering, uh, may be triggering to some. And so I just want to extend that as a kindness. This topic is one that, that if I'm really, really honest, I was not excited to talk about for lots of reasons, none the least of which is the fact that people get really, really anxious. I want to start by reading a, a, a section, uh, just a story out of this book. It's a book, uh, it's called, by Preston Sprinkle, it's called uh, People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. And I want to read you this story, and I may, may or may not make it through. It's a story of a guy named Eric Borges. Eric Borges was raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realized he was different. The other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentless and ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten, and the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally, and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of other mental and physical problems. My name was not Eric, but faggot. I was stalked, spit on, ostracized. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom, and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. I was told that the very essence of my being was unacceptable. I had nowhere safe to go, not even church. In his sophomore year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other youth who have had similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others find comfort and hope to pull them through the pain. 
One month later, Eric killed himself. I read this story to frame this conversation in a way on purpose. Whenever I talk about this, I have real people in mind. I have real people in mind. In my years as an airline pilot, I, I got the chance to interact with lots and lots of people who were homosexuals. And what I found was that these people were struggling in a lot of the same ways that I would struggle, but that they were real people, real people who were just trying to live life. And when we consider what the Bible has to say around human sexuality and how we relate to people around the topic of homosexuality, I want to start from, under, from a place of understanding the harm that the LGBTQ community has experienced. Especially the harm that they've experienced at the hands of Christians and the church. The reason I want to start here, the reason I think we have to begin here is actually, it's the basis for all of the conversation. For all of the people who are trying to find a biblical case supporting same-sex relationships, it's harm that pushes them there. It's the harm that has been experienced by real people. And so we have to start here. A little bit later, Preston Sprinkle says this. He says, if the gospel is good news, and the church is to be the light that warms the world with this good news, then why are gay people leaving the church in search of better news? If the gospel is not good news for gay people, then it's not good news. We began this series at the beginning of January with the idea that we would take real questions that you all have submitted, and I let you do it anonymously because I didn't want to single anyone out. I wanted you to be able to ask real questions. And one of the first questions that was duplicated was this, around how do we relate to the, the LGBTQ community and if I'm really, really honest, I didn't want to address it, not because it was unworthy of addressing, but because it's so hard to have a conversation about a topic that everybody feels wild emotion about. It's so hard, and I can't underscore emotionally focused enough if you actually want to engage this topic in, in a real healthy way. Uh, we've, we've provided you a, a venue to, to make steps towards being able to do this without emotional reaction. And I, the challenge I feel when addressing this topic is that I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we can have an honest conversation that doesn't result in some reaction, some emotional triggering and reaction. I'm not sure. I hope that we can, but I'm not sure. And what I know is that during the course of this message, we're all going to feel some kind of emotions, and probably strongly. One of the things that I know for a fact is that there are some who will hear me who, unless I say one specific thing, will write off everything that I have to say. Unless I stand up here and tell you that you need to like ridicule and hate them because they're an abomination, 
you'll write off everything that I say. Or unless I stand up here and say God is all affirming in same-sex relationships, you'll write off everything I say. And can I just say that's an emotional reaction. It's not a thoughtful response. What I want us to do before we get started in this is take our emotional temperature. Can we do that? Like actually be honest with ourselves about what our typical reaction is when the topic of LGBTQ comes up. Because if we're going to have any honest conversation, we need to be aware of the fact that we actually tend towards certain triggers. So can we do that? Can we take our, an honest look at our emotional temperature and as you become present to the emotions that you have, I want to pray and just invite God to allow us to hear. Can we do that? So let's pray. Lord, I, I just confess that I'm completely, completely inadequate to know the depth of your heart and your mind when it comes to the LGBTQ community. And so, Lord, I confess that I'm sharing to the best of my ability what I believe to be your heart. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come, that you would fill me. God, that you would bring peace here, that we would be able to hear your voice, even in places that we get triggered. So would you come, would you speak, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, deep breath, okay? Good? All right. All right, we're going to move forward now. Before we can answer the question about how a Christian should relate to the LGBTQ community, we need to consider two things. Like, and these two things we can't let go of. The first thing is that we're talking about real people. Real people with real lives. It's not just an issue. It's not a political topic to be argued about. We're genuinely talking about real people, people whom God loves deeply and people for whom Jesus was willing to die. We're talking about real people with real names. We're talking about people who get up and go to work just like you and me, people who sit down to figure out their budget and their finances and where their money's going to go and how they're going to make it to the end of the month just like you and me. We're talking about people whose cars break down at the wrong times, people who have to figure out what's for dinner, people who have families and family conflict, just like you and me, people who have issues with that uncle that's always around and makes them feel a little weird. Real people, people who hit the snooze button because they don't want to get out of bed when the alarm goes off, just like you and me. People who pay taxes, people who buy and sell houses, people who feel joy and sadness, people who get excited and get depressed. We're talking about real human beings. And we have to hold that tightly. We're not just talking about an issue with nameless and faceless people. We're talking about real people. And on the other hand... We have to be committed to the fact that the Bible is our guide for how God has revealed himself and how life is supposed to work, what it means to be a Christian, 
is that you have surrendered control of your life to Jesus. That you've said, I'm not in charge of how I conduct myself any longer, but Jesus directs me. And it means that we uphold faithfulness to the Bible as a, as a, a first importance. And the testimony of how God has revealed life to work best is in Scripture. And there's a tension here. Do you see the tension? That on the one hand, we want to hold tightly to real people. And on the other hand, we want to hold tightly to biblical faithfulness. And it's a tension that people who follow Jesus are called to walk in. And it's not unique to this specific topic. It's the way that we're supposed to live our lives all the time. Kingdom people are always people who live in tension. The reason this is an important tension to hold on to is because often we find ourselves faulting to one side or the other. I'm going to hold more tightly to people than Scripture. And so really we can let go of the Bible as any authority because I, I don't like what it does to these people. On the other hand, we hold tightly to the Bible and we let go to people and it's like, well, you're just enemies of God. Deal with it. The Bible says, and we throw it at people and we hit people with it. Do you see that we have to hold the tension? We actually have to hold on tightly to people, real people, that God loves. And on the same time, we have to hold tightly to Scripture, which is God's revelation to us. It's a tension. And there's two major fronts in this conversation. And, and unless you want to be here till 3 o'clock, I've chosen to like minimize one to maximize the other. The one front is, what does the Bible have to say about same-sex relationships? You see that? That's the one front. What does the Bible actually say? The other front of this conversation is, how do we relate to people who are same-sex attracted and same-sex oriented? You see that there's two fronts here? And if we spent, I, I, the best talk that I've heard given on this was by a guy named John Tyson, and he spent an hour and a half covering all of it. He started his message saying, sometimes we just need a long sermon in church. I'm not convinced that I'm compelling enough that you would stay with me for an hour and a half. I'm hoping for like 35 minutes. But here's the thing. We can't talk about the question that was asked, how do we relate to the LGBTQ community without at least at some level addressing what does the Bible say? I'm not going to go all the way deep into all of it. I, if you haven't read, there's a lot of reading you can do about all of that stuff. I, I, <laughs> it's a lot of books. But what I'm saying is, if you want to know what the, what the discussion of the Bible is, you can know. You can understand the, the conversation at a deep level. I would say you should try to understand that. But recognizing that in order to have the conversation that we're going to have today, you don't have time to read all that. Let me give us a little bit of a perspective. The historical interpretation of Scripture, of the church over the last 2,000 years, maybe a little less than 2,000, the historical interpretation is that sexuality is only permissible within the context of heterosexual monogamous marriage. That's the only place. Everywhere else, it's celibacy. That's the historical interpretation of the church. But here's the thing. Many people are wondering if that interpretation is wrong. 
And the reason that they're wondering if it's wrong is because of the harm that it does to the LGBTQ community. And before you just write it off, the best case in favor of affirming same-sex relationships is by a guy named Matthew Vines. This is his book, God and the Gay Christian. And the subtitle is The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. I want to outline what his point is, okay? If you're not familiar with it, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to hold tightly to real people and to Scripture. He's not throwing out Scripture and saying it doesn't really matter. He's trying to hold tightly. Here's the case that he makes. The first point is the application of the historical ethic has resulted in tremendous harm to people who are same-sex oriented. His second point is that Christian history, the history of the time of the biblical authors, knows nothing of same-sex orientation. That's his argument. He says, every same-sex expression in the time of Scripture was exploitative, abusive. The Bible knows nothing of same-sex-oriented people who are committed to one another in loving relationships. That's his second point. The third point that he makes is celibacy is not necessarily a calling for everyone but that it's a gift given to some. The third point that he made, or the fourth point that he makes, is gender complementarity. And what I mean by that is man and woman in marriage is not necessarily biblical, it's societal. His point is that in Genesis, whenever uh, Adam finds Eve as a suitable partner, what, he's, that what makes Eve suitable is not her femaleness, but her humanness. And so there's not a biblical case, he says, that gender complementarity is biblical. It's societal, he says. And then he goes through, do you know how many passages there are that seem to out, like forbid same-sex expression? Anybody know? Heaven knows. It's six. There's six passages. He goes through the six passages, and he argues that none of them address the same-sex relationships we know today. That's his whole case. And so what he says is, because the Bible doesn't directly address the kind of relationships we know today, we have to allow for charity and allow people who are actually trying to covenant with one another and express lots of other biblical concepts, namely faithfulness, monogamous sexuality, covenant relationship, he says, you have to allow for charity in that. Now, that's the case. And I imagine a number of you are like, are you going to go with that? Some of you are nervous. It sounds like a really solid argument. I think you should understand it. I don't think he proves the case. I don't think he makes the point. And when I started studying for this two, month, two months ago, started reading, I was open to listening to a good argument in favor of affirming same-sex relationships. I actually genuinely wanted to know the argument. And my, what has happened in my study is that I have grown more concrete in that the Bible actually does call for sexuality only within monogamous heterosexual marriage. And the Bible actually does call for abstinence in every other place. But here's the thing. That doesn't actually solve the problem that we're after. 
It doesn't solve the problem of harm. What do you do? Hit somebody with it and say you're wrong. It doesn't solve the problem of harm because here's the challenge. I have found myself wrestling tremendously with the implications for this. If you're a married person and you're going to tell someone who is same-sex attracted that you can never have sex for the rest of your life, think about, would you want to say that to someone? Doesn't that feel like a really difficult call when you yourself can go home and express yourself sexually? It feels cruel a little bit, doesn't it? Or to say not only to to same-sex attracted people, to single people. Hey, I'm sorry, not you. Do you recognize what the, the issues that keep coming back? That there's real people that are implicated by the biblical ethic. Where It's not easy. It's not a slam dunk. It's not like, a well, we've solved it. Once for all, we've figured it out. Sorry, Eric, hope you have a good life. It's not easy. And I'm deeply troubled by the harm that's been done in the name of protecting the biblical ethic. For what it's worth, the harm caused is mostly the issue that the culture around us has. Most of the culture around us, outside the church, is not going, well, I disagree with your interpretation of Scripture. Most of them don't even know what the interpretation of Scripture is. They just believe that we have applied it incorrectly because it's resulting in harm. And that's where I want to spend the rest of the time here. What do we do about the harm that's been caused and experienced by the LGBTQ community? Is harm justification enough to let go of the biblical ethic? Do we just do as some have chosen to do and decide that Scripture must be wrong here? It just must be wrong. I read one author who, who, that was what he said. He said, I was prepared to say that Scripture's just wrong here because of the harm. Now, I don't think that's the way that we go forward. But I want you to understand that it's not simple to move forward. What is the biblical way forward? I want to look at a passage of Scripture with you that I think will help guide us as we consider how to relate to the LGBTQ community. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, here's what it says. says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Verse 13 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Jesus refers to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as the ones who sit in Moses' seat. It's shorthand for saying what they're teaching is biblical. They're teaching you how God has revealed life to work biblically. And what he says is they're teaching the right things. They're actually teaching God's truth. 
Nevertheless, Jesus condemns them because he says that they don't do the same things that they call other people to. And when they put these heavy burdens on people, they don't do anything to help. Listen, I think the historical biblical ethic is right. But you know what I also think? I think it's really hard. I think the historical biblical ethic is really, really hard. And it's hard because, especially in our hypersexualized culture, we've gotten everything really twisted. We've put sex at the center of everything. Our culture has equated sex with eating food and drinking water and getting enough sleep. It's a need that everyone has. And so to uphold the biblical ethic seems crazy at times. The biblical ethic runs violently across the grain of our culture, and nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. Homosexual people don't like it. Heterosexual people don't like it. Single people don't like it. Dating people don't like it. Married people don't like it. Divorced people don't like it. For various reasons. I mean, think about it if you were to just mention it in public. Go to your workplace and be like, well, you know, I think all of you who are here having sex shouldn't be because you're not married. What's going to happen? Everybody just thinks you're crazy. Have you ever tried that? Upholding the biblical ethic in a place where people disagree with you? Everybody just thinks you're nuts. People don't like it. They don't like the biblical ethic because it runs against the grain of our culture. And here's why. The biblical ethic only makes sense in the context of complete surrender to Jesus. It only makes sense in the context of someone who says, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is in charge of every aspect of my life. There's not any aspect that he doesn't tell me how to live. Outside of that, in our culture, this ethic makes no sense. But if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus and we say, yes, Jesus is not just my Savior who has saved me from sin, Jesus is my Lord. It's the only place that it makes sense. One of the problems that causes so much harm among LGBTQ people who want to find the life Jesus offers is that we in the church tend to lead with the biblical ethic. We're so afraid that people will think we've compromised our biblical witness by loving someone and treating them kindly that we have to throw up this wall and say, you just need to know that I don't think the way you live is right. Just in case you might call me compromised. That has less to do with them and more to do with our own anxiety. And quite honestly, it's really hateful to do that. Where else do you do that? You meet somebody who struggles with greed and go, just so you know, greed's not okay. Just want you to know. Don't want you to think I embrace your lifestyle of greed. <laughs> Just want you to know. Right? Just want you to know the idolatry that you live in is not okay. We can be friends, but you need to know up front that I think idolatry is wrong. We don't start that way with anyone else. Because it's rude. If nothing else, don't be rude. Maybe we should start by understanding who people are. 
Maybe we could actually start by getting to know someone's name and understanding the way that their life has been formed before we tell them what's right and what's wrong. You don't like it, do you? When somebody does that to you? Listen, I have struggled with weight most of my life. If I could just be skinny, I would. <laughs> right? I have tried lots and lots and lots of things with varying degrees of success. I have been to the gym, goes like this, in cycles. Right now it's like this. But whenever Planet Fitness opens the showers, it'll be like this. Right? But do you know what happens when somebody tells me about my weight and how I eat? It feels hateful. Because I have wrestled my whole life trying to be healthy. It feels hateful when you start with, man, maybe you shouldn't eat that. Ever thought about going to the gym? It's hateful. Maybe you should get to know me and understand who I am before you decide to tell me what's right and what's wrong. And I say that to say the experience of the LGBTQ community when it comes to Christians is that we tend to throw a wall at them to start. Just so you know, I'm uncomfortable with this and I think it's wrong. You should know that before we be friends. It's rude. And it comes off as hateful. Maybe we could start there. Maybe we could just start by being kind. You know what's worse? So many of the people in the church don't even practice the ethic that we espouse. We want to put a stone wall at the door and make sure all the gay people know that they got to get this right before they come in. Meanwhile, we walk in and we were sleeping with somebody last night. Hey, after all, I got needs, and the Bible is, you know, it's old. People used to get married in their teenage years. What do you mean I got to be celibate till I'm in my 20s and 30s? Right? We're in a committed dating relationship. This is just the next step. You know, we have married people who, who are just sort of like, hey, our sex life has sort of grown stale. And so we've just sort of invited some other people to come in and participate with us to spice it up a little bit. Or I'm kind of tired of sleeping with this person, so I'm going to go sleep with that person. I'm going to praise Jesus on Sunday. I have a hard time with intimacy with other people, so I just frequent porn and, and uh, websites because I don't know how to do intimacy with people. We don't live the ethic that we want gay people to live. How do you think that feels? Hey, you all should know this is not okay, and we're all supposed to be celibate here if we're not married, but we just sort of like, eh. Do you see this? This is the pro one of the big problems. It's hurtful to tell someone who's same-sex attracted, hey, you got to figure out how to do this really hard thing of celibacy. Meanwhile, we don't. And it's our hypocrisy that has tied heavy, cumbersome loads on the shoulders of the LGBTQ community that we ourselves are not willing to lift a finger to help. You see this? 
And those that do want to help go, well, I'm not going to stop doing this part of my life, so I guess I'm just going to have to decide that God must be okay with this for you. And can I just suggest pastorally that that's a bad way to go? Because what you're doing is constructing a God in your image, otherwise known as idolatry. God is no longer God, you are God. It's not a good way to go. If we want to relate well to the LGBTQ community, our first step is to get our own sexuality submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. It starts here. It starts with us. Before we tell other people what the sexual ethic is, maybe we should get our own stuff straight. Maybe that'd be a great place for us to start. Be way more concerned with the lustful glances that we sort of indulge in before we tell other people what they can and can't do. Be a great place to start. And if you want to be someone who relates well to LGBTQ community, that's what you should do. You should be way more concerned with your own stuff than you are with somebody else's stuff. Do that everywhere. Be way more concerned with your own stuff than other people's stuff. And here's the deal, though. As soon as we do this, we're going to discover a need that I think we haven't taken near seriously enough in the church. I don't think we've taken near seriously enough, and that's the need to create communities of deep intimacy that don't involve sex. I think that's a critical need. One of the places of the harm that shows up over and over and over in every resource that I read is that gay people experience when we tell them, hey, I'm sorry, celibacy is what you have. They're like, well, you're cutting off my hope for intimacy. You're telling me I can't have intimacy for the rest of my life? And of course, we don't think that's what we're saying. But it's how they experience it. And this is, a, this is kind of a problem of our own making as the church. It's two facets. The first facet is that increasingly the church in America has become transactional. Right? You come here, you get the things that you want or need, and then you leave. What's worse is now that we have live stream, you don't even have to come here to get those things. So you come in whatever form you want, you get the things that you want, and then you leave, but deep community is not considered essential in the church in America. It's a nice to have, we kind of hope we get it, but it's not essential. And so when we tell someone, I'm sorry, you have to be celibate for the rest of your life, there's no space that we offer where people can engage in deeply intimate communion, communion without sexual expression. And so effectively what we end up telling people is, I'm sorry, no intimacy for the rest of your life. Do you see that? I think it's one of the reasons that the megachurch era is coming off. It's like, because you can't be in a body of Christ and not be known. If you want anything of value to happen. It's important to have spaces of intimacy. We do a less and less deep life in the church nowadays. The second facet is that we've lifted marriage to be the pinnacle of human relationship. We've sort of made it the pinnacle. And what we don't necessarily say, but is a very real implication, is that everyone should be married, and if you're not, something's wrong with you. Do you realize that that's what happens in church all over the places? We've decided that the most important thing that people can be is married. 
And if they're not, they're lacking in some way. And it's to this relationship that we've shifted deep intimacy. We've taken it out of the body of people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, and we've said, intimacy belongs only in marriage, and if you're not married, there's something wrong with you. And when we do this, we've told not just gay people, but we've told single people, is sorry, you're not that important. Sorry, you're never going to have intimacy for the rest of your life. Unless you can find somebody to get married to, no intimacy for you. And less and less do we create real spaces where we celebrate singleness as a legitimate way to live life. And is it any wonder then that gay people say, well, I guess we have to get married if we actually want to have intimacy and fulfillment? And how cruel of the church to say that we can't. Do you see that we've made this problem? It's a far cry from Paul in 1 Corinthians who upholds singleness as actually the most effective way to be a kingdom person. Do you see this? Because if you don't, it'll be hard to understand what the concern is. If we're going to relate well to the LGBTQ community, our second step is to create real spaces of deep intimacy that are not sexual. It means you can't just pop in and pop out. It also means like it can't all be here. You actually have to live a lifestyle where you're, you welcome people into intimate spaces that are not sexual. Here's the problem, though. Our culture can't tell the difference. Increasingly, our culture can't tell the difference between intimacy and sex. We've equated the two. But if we would live into the biblical ethic of celibacy, we actually would discover that there's a deep human longing for intimacy. A deep human longing for intimacy. To expect single people to live in celibacy is biblical, but to, to expect single people to live without intimacy is cruel. And that's not just single people who are heterosexual, that's homosexual people as well. It's cruel to expect people not to be, have intimate relationships. The third step that I want to, and the last one that I want to say, is that we need to be a community where love is guaranteed. We need to be a community where love is guaranteed. It's foundational to the gospel. Some of you are old enough to remember the four spiritual laws. You, how many of you are old enough to remember four, four spiritual laws? Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ. Wrote this, and the first spiritual law in his four spiritual laws were this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You heard that? It's because the foundation for all Christian ministry is that God loves you. We start there. Love is guaranteed. And if we want to be a people who actually relate well to the LGBTQ community, we have to be extensions of the love that God has for them. The hope that I have in every interaction that I have with all of you is that you interact with me knowing that love is guaranteed. 
I do better and worse at that depending on the day sometimes. But the hope that I have is that you experience that love is guaranteed. When you come and talk about how your marriage is falling apart, my hope is that you experience that love is guaranteed. When you come and you talk about the addictions that you have and the struggle you have with pornography, I hope that you understand love is, love is guaranteed. It's not dependent on you getting it right first. Love is guaranteed when you come and you talk about the, the struggle that you have with greed. And what I want you to know is that love is guaranteed because God's love is guaranteed to you. My interactions with you should be that love is guaranteed. And here's why I think that's a critical piece. The effect of knowing that love is guaranteed is that it provides a safe place to struggle. If I know that my love, your love for me is not dependent on my ability to get it right, then I can actually engage in the struggle in an open and honest way. But here's the problem. The message that the LGBTQ community has received in so many instances with the church is that when you come to talk about your sexuality, love is withheld. It's not guaranteed. Not only is love withheld, but you're going to be ridiculed and dehumanized. I had a conversation with a guy shortly after we moved to Altoona who described himself as gay and a Christian. And what he told me is that if I could change my orientation, I would. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. I wouldn't wish this life on anyone because it's been really hard. And what he said is that it's hard for him to hold on to Christian faith because every time he tries to connect with the church, they push him away. As if he's a piece of garbage. And he said it gets really, really hard to follow Jesus when the people who follow Jesus with you push you away. He said it was easier just to go find people who actually loved him. And I guess that means I can't follow Jesus. But these people at least love me. Problem was he didn't want to give up on Jesus. And so he struggled. I don't think he's an anomaly. I think there are lots of people who are trying to figure this out. So when a person realizes that they're same-sex attracted, and they realize that they can't really change that, and they realize that it wasn't a choice that they made, if they don't find the church a safe environment to unpack and process it, they'll go somewhere else. They'll look for a place where they're loved. If they don't find safety and hope with we who follow Jesus, where are they going to find it? Where else in the world offers that kind of safety and hope? Who else in the world is inviting people to live into the new identity as the beloved of God? Nobody. Who else in the world believes that all things will be made new again and that struggle and failure can be redeemed? Nobody. We're it. But in the absence of welcoming people into that space, they will find love somewhere. Friends, we have to be these people. 
We have to be people who live in the tension of walking and holding tightly to biblical faithfulness and real people. We have to be the people who are committed to the ethic we, we espouse. We have to be people who actually live the things that we're saying everybody should live. We have to be people who create space for deep relationships of intimacy that are not sexual. We have to be people who guarantee love and invite people into a safe space to struggle. We have to be those people. That's who we are. And I think it's time for us to step into that space. Y'all okay? You can take a deep, deep breath. I can take a deep breath. I'm going to put a whole bunch of resources. And if you don't know, we have a podcast where the messages go. We have a YouTube channel where you can go back and watch this stuff. I'm going to put links to all of these, this stuff in, the, in the, that, that bit of information, the, what they call it, show notes. Because I want us to be the kind of people who have actually educated ourselves. We actually know how to walk in this world in loving ways. So I'm going to give you guys that information. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.